All right, so when I was growing up, um, my dad, uh, he got this car when I was about six years old and he loved this car. Uh, it was a Saab 900 Turbo, uh, 1984. And uh, he loved that car, it was fast, it was fun to drive. He had it all the way up until I was out of high school. So it was the car I drove when I was a teenager, but he got it when I was really young. And I have this clear memory around that car when I was about six years old. Uh, my dad had my brother and I in the front yard with him and we were weeding kind of the front garden patch in our front yard. And my dad had given us a bag. He said, hey, when you pull up the weeds, put them in this bag and uh, then we'll just throw all of them away. And so at one point while we're sitting there weeding, my dad went inside and left my brother and I out there kind of doing some garden work. And I decided in my six-year-old brain that pulling a weed and putting it in a bag wasn't fun enough. You know, I needed a little bit more movement because I was an active kid. So I was like, I decided I'm gonna start throwing the weeds. So I would pull them and like throw it over my shoulder like this, you know, like just felt like I was doing the hard work of a man, you know, just throwing stuff over my shoulder. So I'm just sitting there pulling weeds, throwing over my shoulder. And then my brother taps me on the shoulder and he says, hey, do you see what you're doing? And I turn around and there's my dad's car covered with dirt and weeds, a whole clump of them that I've thrown over my shoulder to land on the hood of his sob. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I had this moment. I could tell my dad about it. That felt like a terrible idea. I was like, so I've got to cover this thing up. So I disappear, I go into the house I get some dry paper towels and I come back out and I try to wipe that dirt off of my dad's car. And as you, you can guess what happened, I'm just smearing that dirt like all over the hood of my dad's car. And when it's smeared, I, I wiped a little bit harder, smearing it in even more. And then I hear this like tapping on the window of the house and I look up and there's my dad looking out the window at me and he's doing one of these things. He's like, uh-uh, like, don't do that. And then he does one of these, like come inside, come inside right now. And I'm like, my life is over. Like I've just ruined my dad's car. So I go inside, he sits me down and, and he brings me into his bedroom and he sits me down on his bed. He says, hey, uh, you're in trouble. And I'm like, yeah, I know dad, I'm in trouble. He goes, do you know why you're in trouble? And I said, yeah, I'm in trouble because uh, I threw dirt on your car. He goes, no, that's not why you're in the most trouble. He said, you're in trouble because instead of confessing it and just coming to get me when you made a mistake, you tried to deal with it yourself and hide it and you only made it worse. He said, if you would have just come and gotten me and told me, I could have cleaned that up so easily. Yeah, I would have been frustrated that you disobeyed me. He said, but I could have cleaned it up. Your problem, you're in trouble because instead of being honest with me, you were sneaky and tried to deal with it yourself. And I got in big trouble. I had a pretty big consequence and I remember it to this day. So uh, my dad's a good teacher. But you know, what, what I remember about that moment is that I realized there was something in me, something in my heart. And, and if I'm honest, it's still in my heart to this day that you know, I've got this tendency that if I mess up, if I do something wrong, if I, if I mess up, like I have this tendency, I wanna deal with it myself. I wanna to try to make it right. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think this is a human tendency that all of us have, that when we know we've messed up, we know we've dropped the ball, we've done something we're not supposed to, our tendency is to want to go, hey, I can fix this, I can make it right. And we want to do it in the way that will save us the most trouble. How can I make this right to where I don't have to confess that I was wrong? How can I make this right so that I don't have to pay for the consequences that come along with this action? How can I make this right so that nobody will see how wrong I actually was? This is like the, the internal motivation of my heart, if I'm honest, when I mess up. And I think it's something all of us share in common. You know, we're gonna look at some things today about humanity, about me, about each of you that will feel challenging at times. 
But beloved, I, I believe that it is in this moment of looking at the things of challenge that we find the greatest news the world's ever heard, that we find the opportunity for the absolute most freedom that humanity can access. We're gonna be looking at the cross the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been with us, uh, we've been talking about the journey of faith, talking about our journey of faith, and we've kind of paralleled it with the journey that the apostle Peter was on. And we've seen all these moments in his journey to come to understand Jesus and who he was and where our journey overlaps that. And so last week, we kind of saw this place where Peter was faced with the cost of following Jesus. Where Jesus says, hey, unless you lay down your life, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross, die to self, all of those things. Basically, Jesus said, hey, the path that I'm leading you on is a path that is marked by suffering before glory. And what we saw last week was that Peter really wrestled with this reality. And for the majority of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Peter is wrestling with it right up until the moment where Jesus is arrested and where Jesus is killed. Remember last week we said, you know, Peter, at the moment where Jesus is about to be arrested, he pulls out a sword showing him, man, he was, he was ready to kill for Jesus, but he was not ready to die for Jesus. And a few hours later, he would deny Jesus completely and say he didn't even know him. So we saw Peter wrestling with the cost of following Jesus. You know, but something, something interesting happens in Peter's life. You fast forward about 50 days, just 50 days from that moment where he denies Jesus, where he completely misses the path. About 50 days later, you find Peter standing up, preaching boldly, like proclaiming the death of Jesus. And it's not just that he's preaching boldly about the death of Jesus, he's actually teaching about this whole suffering before glory thing that Jesus talked about. In Acts chapter three, he looks at all of his Jewish sisters and brothers. He says, hey, listen, God has fulfilled what was written about the Messiah that he had to suffer. And so Peter at one point is trying to go, no, 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 suffering, that can't be part of this thing, Jesus. And then 50 days later, he's embracing, wholeheartedly embracing the path of suffering before glory. And he is proclaiming that message to all around him, even to the point of himself being persecuted and beaten because of the message. What in the world shifted in Peter's heart? What happened with Peter? How did he go from coward to I can't pay the cost, to inviting others to pay the cost and paying it so wholeheartedly. You know, there's a lot that happened in Peter's life between those two moments, but I believe the things that really shifted his heart that made such a change in him from being coward to being bold was that he got a front row seat for the two most consequential events in human history. I believe G Peter got a front row seat to the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And I will gladly hold out that I believe those two events are the most significant consequential events in human history for every single human being, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And Peter saw them and it changed his life. And what's amazing is that all the way up until today, people are still encountering these two events and they are radically changing the lives of those who encounter Jesus at a cross in an empty tomb. This week, we're gonna specifically look at the cross. Why a cross? Why is the cross at the center of Christian identity, of what it means to follow Jesus? And we're gonna look at it specifically from Peter's perspective, and then next week, we're gonna look at the resurrection. But this week, we're gonna look in 1 Peter chapter three. Now, what, this, what we have in 1 Peter, it is a letter that Peter wrote about 30 years after all the experiences he had of struggling with this journey. 
He would write it 30 years later and he would be the one that would be writing to comfort those who are suffering, to comfort those who are experiencing hardship because of their faith in Jesus. We're gonna look specifically at really just one verse. We'll ping back to a couple others, but really just one verse. First Peter chapter three, verse 18. Peter is going to give us his perspective on what happened at the cross of Jesus. So this is what he writes. First Peter three, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. That one simple verse, Peter captures the essence of what happened at the cross. He says, Jesus suffered for sins to bring us to God, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit. And so we're gonna look at three different aspects of this verse. We'll spend the majority of our time at the first one because I think it's the one where we feel the most confusion as a culture. So the first thing he says here, he says, listen, Jesus suffered for sins. Jesus suffered for sins. He made it even more clear just one chapter earlier, if you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he says it this way. Peter says, he himself, this is Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so if we want to understand why is the cross so central, why does the cross matter so much? Well, in the eyes of Peter, who was there to witness the whole, whole thing, he says, if you want to understand the cross and the significance of the cross of Jesus, you have to understand this word sin. We have to come to terms with this, this word sin and what it means. You know, this is challenging in our culture because the word sin um, it's not super popular. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> like, I dare you to go to one of your friends and try to tell them that um, you think that they're stuck in a sin. Like, just see how that goes. This will be really interesting for you. They're not gonna like it. Like the word sin just feels very heavy, very weighty. And, and honestly, in, the, in our culture, I think our culture doesn't know what to do with it. We don't know how to understand it. It's really interesting. There's a woman by the name of Hillary Brand and um, don't know a whole lot about her, but she did a fascinating study back in 2015 she was asking the question, she says, what happened to the word sin? Why don't we ever use it anymore the way that it was intended to be used? And so she did this study on, on popular culture. Now she was British, so she, she did this in England and she surveyed 527 different media articles from a window of about 16 days back in 2015. She surveyed every single article, whether it was a blog, a newspaper article, a magazine article, a periodical. She like found it all online and she looked for, she searched for the word sin to see where is it still used in popular culture and how are people understanding what it actually is. It's really fascinating what she discovered. You know, the majority of its uses, uh, it was used quite a bit. The majority of its uses were mostly ironic or kind of like as a figure of speech, kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, but it was used quite a bit. So one of the examples that she gives of this was the phrase cardinal sin kind of popped up all over the place, but it was used usually at an attempt to like draw attention to an action. So like, for example, there was one blog she came across that was entitled, help, I've committed a cardinal sin. I've fallen in love with my roommate. And so this person was drawing attention to something that had happened in their life, but they were using sin kind of lightly, kind of just to say, hey, help me navigate this tricky situation that could be potentially awkward that I'm in. Another example that she pointed out was actually an example that used biblical language. It said, it used the phrase multitude of sins, which if you've read in the Bible, the Bible says, hey, love covers over a multitude of sins. And so here's this phrase, but it was used this way. This was, it was an ad, an advertisement in a magazine for uh, women's clothing. And it said this, 
this, this blouse is perfect for covering a multitude of sins and giving you a long, lean silhouette. <laughs> so I don't think that's exactly what the Bible meant when it said multitude of sins. Like, you know, these examples, they kind of leave us wondering, like if you were just in the world and you're reading the word sin, it's like, what in the world is sin? Is it, you know, is it unsightly body shape or is it a social faux pas? Like what in the world is sin? She found another example where a British ice cream company uh, put out this line of ice cream bars and there were seven of them and they were named for the seven deadly sins. And so if you got the chocolate caramel inside, you got the jealousy bar, you know, because everyone looks at she's going to be jealous, you know, and every ice cream bar was labeled for a seven deadly sin. Or we look at our own country. We look at a city like Las Vegas. There's a nickname that Las Vegas has not just been given, but fully embraced. What is the nickname for Las Vegas? What is it? Just say it out loud. Sin City. You know, it's really interesting that this was the nickname given to Las Vegas and Las Vegas actually touts it as like, hey, this is actually an attractive thing. Las Vegas will use it to draw people in, to have an allure to it. You see how confusing it is that if, if you come across this word sin in the Bible, there's not really clear understanding of what it means if you've been shaped by the culture around us. Modern marketing, modern marketing would have us think that sin is simply an invitation to throw off prudence, throw off propriety, throw off being proper and just indulge. You know, just indulge, that's okay. Whether it be in your favorite candy or ice cream or your favorite sexual preference, whatever it is, you know, this is just kind of a marketing metaphor to invite people in by using the word sin. But for us, as followers of Jesus, we throw this word out and it clearly has something different. I mean, here Peter connects it to the cross of Jesus and we talk about sin a lot you know, it's really interesting, uh, well-known atheist and uh, evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, he says this, the Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have in your life. This, this is the perception of followers of Jesus from society's perspective. We take sin seriously and we're looked at as it's just a nasty preoccupation. Just, just kind of move on. So what is sin? What does the Bible say about sin? And why does the cross have to be connected to our sin? You know, the, the reality is that in the Greek language, there's actually at least five different words that can be used to translate into sin or wickedness or lawlessness. Five different words, and all of them have slightly different definitions. I'm not gonna give you a lesson in Greek this morning, but I do wanna look at some of these definitions to give us a broader picture and perspective on what sin is so that we can have a deeper understanding of the cross of Jesus. So the first word, we're gonna put these on the screen. The first one is the word hamartia, and it, it has this uh, definition, missing the intended mark. Missing the intended mark. So it's just so much of not, it's a simple definition of like, hey, you actually just didn't quite measure up to what was intended. And that's, that's one definition. The second definition uh, is, is unrighteousness or iniquity. And this one kind of gets a little bit more internal about the human heart. It's the word adikia. The, the next one is uh, poneria. And this one, this one carries evil intent or motivation. These last two, the second and third one, they kind of really show just kind of the inward state of the heart. There's something about human, the heart of humanity that it's getting at. Uh, the third one there is the one that Jesus would use when the religious teachers would try to catch him and try to trick him. He would call out, he would call out kind of the maliciousness or the evil intent in their heart. The fourth one is uh, parabasis, and it is to trespass. 
to trespass or stepping over a known boundary. So think about this imagery. You know that there's a line, a property you're not supposed to go into trespasses. You step over that line intentionally. So this is one of the words that the Bible we use to talk about sin. It's saying, hey, there's a boundary here and we are, as humanity, we are not meant to cross it and yet we do. This is a word the Apostle Paul used quite a bit to talk about sin. The fifth word, the fifth definition, it comes from the word anomia and it is uh, lawlessness or disregard for a law. I want you to see the spectrum of these definitions. You've got you got some where it's just, you're, you're kind of not quite measuring up. You just missed the mark. Some of it is about the inward condition of our heart. Some of it is about stepping over a line. And the last one is about, hey, you know what? Throw off all the lines, throw off all the boundaries, completely disregard any kind of limitation. I'm going all in on whatever. So if we had to sum this up, if we had to go, hey, yeah, all five of these are used throughout the Bible. So how would we simply seek to define sin? I think it's a real simple definition. It's this, it is a standard we fail to reach or a line we deliberately cross. What is sin? Sin, it's a, a standard we fail to meet or a line we deliberately cross. What's helpful about these definitions is that we begin to see that sin is, it's an internal reality. It's about the human heart. But it includes, but it's not, it's not limited to, but it includes external behaviors. I think most of us, you know, the world, we think of sin, we think of this list of behaviors, but you know, what the Bible is holding out is sin, lawlessness, wickedness, this kind of thing. It is, it is something in the human heart that results often in stepping over a boundary or throwing it off completely. But it is about the internal heart and there's a standard for that. And we go, okay, well, wait a minute. So what's the standard? And who gets to set the standard? You see, the standard, according to the scriptures, was set all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible. See, in Genesis 1, the Bible would hold out that humanity was created. And we were created, it says this way, it says God created them, male and female, he created them in the image of God. He created them. Do you know, you were created in the image of God Almighty. That is the standard for your life. You're created in the image of God. This is why Jesus in Matthew chapter five can say things like, hey, beloved, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And we go, Jesus, that sounds impossible. He goes, beloved, this is what you were made for. You were made to bear the image of God. Peter himself would, would echo this in 1 Peter 1, just a few chapters earlier. He'll say, listen, be holy as the one who called you is holy. You were made, you and I, all of us, we were made for perfection, for holiness, to bear the image of God Almighty. This is why sin is such a big deal because it is nothing short of a war that is being waged on the image of God in all of creation. Sin comes after the image of God in you and in me and in us. And it's all the ways that we fall short of that standard of perfection and holiness. This is what we were made for. Perfection in thought, perfection in action, perfection in relationships and in how you deal with emotions, perfection. It's what you were made for. The truth is, if we're honest, we have all felt the weight of sin in our lives. Every single one of us, whether you're new to Christianity or you're not following Jesus or you are following Jesus and you've been for years, all of us have felt that moment 
where we come face to face with the reality that we're not quite measuring up to who we want to be and inside we know it's not for what we were meant to be. You know, that, that jealousy, that like kind of envy that's in you for that other person in your life, the jealousy you have of what they have and you want it, you were actually made for more than that. The, the bitterness that you have in your heart, that bitterness towards that other person, whether it's a family member or a friend that just kind of eats at your heart, you were made for more than that. The selfishness and seeking after what I want more than what's best for my family, more than what's best for my friends, my spouse, my friends, like you were made for more than that. That unhealthy competition that makes you secretly despise your coworkers and want to get one leg up on them every chance you get, even if it means it harms them. You were made for more than that. That uncontrollable lust and desire for that thing that you want more than anything that you know you shouldn't have, you know you're not supposed to have it, but you want it and you keep chasing after it regardless the cost. You were made for more than that. That tendency to escape when things get hard and wanna check out using whatever substance I need to just so that I don't have to deal with pain and hardship. You were made for so much more than that. We were made in the image of God, perfection, holiness. This is what you're invited into. This is what God is trying to accomplish in us. This is what he made us for. This is why Jesus says, be holy, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And again, we say, Jesus, that feels impossible. It feels like too much. I can't bear it. It's too much. And Jesus says, I know it's too much for you. It's not too much for me. And Jesus willingly adopts the path of suffering before glory. You see, when we understand what sin is, the next question we have to ask is, hey, what is the, what's the result? What's the penalty? You know, when I threw the dirt on my dad's car, if I were to gone and told him, you know, like, okay, but the penalty for me being sneaky, I had a consequence for that. What is the penalty for sin? Well, the Bible makes it really clear. It just spells it out very plainly. It says the wages of sin is death. Did you know that death was not part of God's created order? Death is not natural. In fact, the Bible actually repeatedly will paint the picture that death is not what God intended. It's not what he was after. I love this quote from John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says it this way, the Bible everywhere views human death not as natural, but a penal event. It is an alien intrusion into God's good world and not part of his original intention for humankind. Throughout scripture then, death is seen as divine judgment on human disobedience. Death is divine judgment on sin. What are the wages of sin? Sin separates us off from the one whose image we bear, who is the source of all life. The natural result of that is death. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins on the cross. Why did Jesus die? Why did he have to die? Because the wages of sin is death. So the second part of that verse, he says it this way. He suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Who's, 
Who's the unrighteous? That's what I've just kind of established with sin. Like, we are. I am. We are the unrighteous. Beloved, coming to the cross and experiencing the power that it has for our lives requires this posture of humility, this posture of going, I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. This is one of the things I love about the recovery world. If you've ever talked with somebody who's in recovery, whether it's for alcoholism or sexual addiction or drug abuse or whatever, in the recovery world, there's these 12 steps that you walk through. The very first step before you can accomplish anything else in the recovery world, the very first step is this. I admit that I am powerless over fill in the blank, whatever it is. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or codependency or unhealthy relationships, I admit that I am powerless over this and my life has become unmanageable. This is the starting point for recovery. Humility, honesty, brokenness with the reality that I am unrighteous, I am powerless to do anything about this. You see, when we come to the cross of Jesus, if you have come to Christianity to find a self-help approach where you can get some tips on how to be a better you, it's only bad news. Because the invitation of Christianity is to come stand at the foot of the cross with every other human being and acknowledge the fact that I can't do it on my own. I am unrighteous. The cross is the great leveler. It levels the playing field for all of humanity. At the foot of the cross, you don't find the, the really good religious people and the not so religious people. At the foot of the cross, you don't find the achiever and the underachiever. You don't find, as they know, you find all of us are the same. We all stand on the level playing field, none of us able to do anything to earn any kind of favor for ourselves, but looking at the man who hung on the cross, recognizing that he's there because of my unrighteousness. Wages of sin is death. And as I stand at the foot of the cross, I realize that the righteous one got on that cross instead of me. All of us are in that together, beloved. This is, no one in this room can say, yeah, I'm a little bit better than the other person. No, 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 we're all leveled on the level playing field, unrighteous, needing the cross of Jesus. Who's the unrighteous? We are the unrighteous. Peter says, well, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. Who's the righteous one? It's none other than Jesus. I love the way Peter describes him in 1 Peter 2, verse 22. He says this, he committed no sin. He never fell short of the mark. Think about all those definitions for sin. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Never fell short of the mark. Never had wickedness in his heart. Never had lawlessness. No, the righteous one, Jesus, the one born of a virgin, the one who lived a perfect life, the one, the one who would touch the leper that everybody else ran away from, the one who would heal the cripple, the one who would open the eyes of the blind, the one who would grieve with his friends when they were grieving over death because he felt the weight of death in the world, the one who would oppose injustice and cruelty with every fiber of his being, the one who lived a perfect sinless life, beautiful, the beautiful life of Jesus. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's not just a teacher. The son of God in the flesh and the righteous one, God on the cross, when I deserve that death so that I don't have to endure it. There is no one like him. 
There never has been. There never will be. The only one undeserving of the wages of sin paid the wages. He bore the wages of sin on the cross so that I don't have to, so that you don't have to. Peter says, Christ suffered for sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we go, okay, to what end, Peter? Why did he do this? And this is the last part. He says this, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. I know I've been saying this uh, over and over again in the last several weeks. I've been saying, hey, that the burning desire of God's heart. Do you know the burning desire of God's heart? Who is this God and what is he like and what is it that he wants? The burning desire of God's heart is to dwell with his people. It's what you see in the Bible at the very beginning. You see God walking in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve. At the very end, in Revelation 21, we looked at that last week. You find it says that God's dwelling place is now with his people. Do you know this is the burning desire of God's heart? He longs to dwell with his people. This is what he's leveraging all of his heart towards, is to dwell with us. And the reality is, the reality is he has set a day. He has set a day that he will come. The glory, the almighty glory of God will dwell amongst humanity. And beloved, I love you too much not to just be honest about this. Here's the reality. The holiness of God, the glory of God, if it's in the presence of sin, what are the wages? Death. You see, the day of the Lord, the day that he has set, it is a day when he will come. And the good news is that all evil, all wickedness, all unrighteousness, all unlawlessness, all of the things that, that we hate in the world will be done away with forever. The only hope for humanity is if we have put our hope and our faith in the man on the cross. And we have said, I want him to pay my wages so that when the day comes, I don't have to pay them myself. This is the gift of the cross. This is the good news. Your sins are no longer yours to carry. The one who says, all who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. He got up on a cross to accomplish that rest for you. So on the day, you can stand before God Almighty, the Holy One, knowing that your wages have already been paid. And Jesus says, I've got that one. I've got her. I've got him. They're mine. They're with me. This is the story of the cross. Now, beloved, this stands in stark contrast to the society around us. You know, we live in a time right now, Dave, Dave said this several times, where we live in a time where the culture says everything is permissible, but nothing is forgivable. You know, this idea that, hey, do whatever you want, throw off all restraint, everything is permissible, but nothing is forgivable. You know, you can do whatever you want, everything's permissible until you do that one thing that results in you being canceled, that results in you being labeled as a heretic, as an pariah, and you're kicked out and you're canceled. You know, we see this in our culture all the time, right? Everything's permissible until you do that one thing. You see, this is the total reversal of that message. Everything is not permissible. Everything is not permissible. Sin is real. Humanity was meant for more. You were meant for more. But here's the good news. Everything is absolutely forgivable because of the wages that Jesus paid at the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. Now I'm gonna release us here in a minute and we're gonna come to the table of grace. We're gonna come to communion. 
Every week when we come to communion, if, if, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing, we get this little cup of juice and this bread. And there are these reminders, this physical picture, it is the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus. That we're reminded that, hey, I stand at the foot of the cross and I'm on level playing field with everybody else in here. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, how good you think you've been, or how bad you think you've been, we come to the table of grace, leveled playing field, we're all the same in need of the price that was paid on the cross. It's amazing. We can come together, and here's what's beautiful, beloved. When we come together around the body and the blood of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. I don't know what sin you've been carrying. I don't know what guilt you're holding on to, what shame you're still carrying. When we come, we can come to the foot of the cross and we go, Jesus, here it is plainly. It frees us. I can be honest about my shortcomings. I can be honest about my sin. I can tell my brother or my sister about what I've done, where I've messed up, what my week has been like, honestly. And we go, praise the Lord, Jesus forgives because of the wages he paid at the cross. So I wanna encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you come to the bread and the cup this morning, don't let anything hinder you. Any sin that you're carrying, any place where you feel off, share it with somebody. Share it with someone, honestly and let them pray for you, and you pray for them. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm begging you to look at this. The Lord loves you, he made you, he created you. He's not here to make you feel bad, to push you down, no, his heart longs to be with you, to dwell with you. He knows the weight of your sin, and he's willing to pay for that weight. He's done it. And so the invitation this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm encouraging you, put your faith in him. He's the only one. And if you wanna be baptized, we've got these cards on the seats around the room. If you have questions, what is, well, baptism is what you're, you're buried. You are baptized into the death of Jesus so that you may live for righteousness. If you wanna be baptized, fill that card out. If you have questions about it, come talk to us at the respond banner, put the card in the mailbox. Don't let this thing sit still. The weight of your sin that you feel on your heart right now, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Because Jesus cared enough about it to endure the most agonizing thing in the world. He suffered a cruel death for you and he loves you deeply. So I'm gonna pray for us. Then we're just gonna dismiss us to get the bread and the cup. And if as you take that together, just share your hearts. Pray for one another. Thank Jesus for his blood, for his body. And if you have questions or you wanna be prayed for, come find us at the respond banner and then we'll kind of move into a time of worship. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you because you, I don't, I don't wanna say a trite prayer, Lord. Lord, this is, we are, we're talking about eternity. You made us for eternity. You made us in your image to be perfect like you. And that's what you hold out for us. Lord, would you help us? I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna deal with sin lightly, Lord. I don't wanna treat it petty, like it's petty. Lord, I wanna be like you. So Father, I pray for us as a family, would you make us like you, Lord? 
Keep refining us. Keep pointing out the places where we fall short of the mark. Keep highlighting the places, Lord, where we live in rebellion to you. Keep highlighting the places, Lord, where we're not living up or we're harboring things in our hearts that are not of you. Lord, highlight them so that you can remove them. We know that's what you want to do. You reveal so you can heal. It is by your wounds that we are healed. Lord, I thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for dying, for suffering. Lord, I pray would you let the beauty of this invitation, the weight of it, the glory of it settle on our hearts. If there's anyone in this room who doesn't know that hope, who doesn't know that love, who doesn't know that joy, oh God, would you through your spirit stir their hearts right now, Lord, would you draw them in to show them you love them, you love them, you love them, you're inviting them. It's an invitation, come to the cross. We're all messed up here. We're all broken here. Come to the cross, come to the cross of Jesus. Oh Lord, would you move? Would you keep drawing us back to that place? Protect us from thinking we're better than anybody. Protect us from looking down on others. Protect us from being haughty and judgmental, Lord. Protect us, forgive us, Lord. We repent as your people. I'm so tired of hearing the world say that Christians are judgmental hypocrites. Forgive us, Lord. Oh Lord, forgive us. Would you help us be merciful and kind? Would you help us be like you, Jesus? Would you help us embrace the path of suffering before glory? Would you help us to lay down our lives for others, Lord? Would you move in our hearts, let the cross of Jesus bear great fruit in our lives that the world would see and the world would know there's a God in heaven who loves humanity, who is leveraging all of his might and his power to redeem humanity. Lord, would you let that song, would you let that gospel message just live out through our lives? Lord, we invite you, we invite you, Lord. Work in our midst as we break the bread, as we take the cup. Convict us of sin, heal us of sin, forgive us of sin. Lord, redeem our lives. Come, Lord, come. Work in our midst as we worship, as we commune, as we share, and as we pray. We love you, Lord. We love you. In the name of Jesus, I pray and I give thanks. Amen.